lawmakers laid the groundwork for the next great South Dakota abortion debate. From SDPB, today is Wednesday, February 7th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, a non-binding resolution outlines what abortion rights advocates and opponents are saying as voters decide whether or not to put the issue on the ballot. Lee Sturbinger has that story, but we'll lead the hour with Sturbinger's reporting on the debate over federal pandemic relief money and the urgency to spend it. We'll also welcome South Dakota Secretary of Education, Joseph Graves. John Hunter is with us for today's political analysis, plus the people who need access to prisons in the service of justice. That conversation is coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from STPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. This is In the Moment, a state house on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. While several groups are clamoring for the remaining millions in the American Rescue Plan Act dollars. That money was approved by President Biden and congressional Democrats in 2021. SDPB's Lee Strubinger joins us now from our Capitol Studios in Pierre with an update. Lee, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, Lori. Good to be here. So the state received nearly a billion dollars from the pandemic relief package, $974 million. Where has that money gone? How much has already been spent? Well, first I'm going to caution anybody who's got their calculator pulled out to just kind of put it away right now because a lot of these numbers are, are very fluid and they, they, they might not add up per se. And so these numbers are, very, are still very fungible. Uh, that being said, about $870 million have been appropriated of that $974 million. Um, a majority of that money has gone to uh, water and wastewater infrastructure projects. Several million have gone towards this uh, workhouse or workforce housing infrastructure program that we've talked a lot about in recent years. Uh, some money has also gone towards tourism marketing, uh, broadband infrastructure, behavioral health, etc. Um, and a majority of the money has been um, a majority of so there's two different. Uh, areas in which this money is sort of living right now. There's money that's been appropriated to certain groups, and then that money has to be obligated as well. And that means like it's, it's already designated for like specific projects. So of that 870 million that's been appropriated, only 235 million of that has been obligated uh, and spent. So that's about a quarter of the money so far. So Governor Nome, in her recent address, said she wanted the remainder of it to go toward water projects. Do I understand that correctly? Correct. Yes. Yep. Um, that was that was something that she made clear uh, during her budget address um, in December. All right. Um, we're gonna we're gonna yeah. pause for a minute and just hear a little bit of that to help uh, listeners uh, um, get the context for that. And I'm recommending that the remaining 120.6 million be invested into various water efforts. The bulk of that money, just over 95 million, will go to the Department of Agriculture and Natural Resources water programs, the same as the 600 million two years ago that you're very familiar with. We should also allocate 25 million to state water and to state wastewater projects. All right, so what is Governor Nome saying now, Lee? Yeah, well, the reason why she's saying this now is because these funds have to be obligated for specific projects by the end of this calendar year. 
So there's $130 million that are still outstanding, and they want to get this money dedicated towards certain projects. The other key deadline here is that this money has to be spent by the year 2026. All right, so let's go over $130 million of ideas, shall we? <laughs> Some of the highlights, yeah. please. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the first one is like a, it's a, it's a bill uh, that started in the Senate. It appropriates $94 million for some of these eligible water and wastewater projects um, that were previously awarded uh, American Rescue Plan Act um, funds. Um, $28 million of that would go towards projects that were already approved by the legislature as well um, to cover some of these like increased uh, prices. So some of these projects that have already been approved, they're coming in a little bit higher than maybe they initially thought, so some of that money will go towards um, those projects. Um, the governor also wants to put uh, $12.4 million of the ARPA money uh, towards installing water and sewer infrastructure for the two proposed prison project facilities that, that we talked about, both in uh, uh, near Sioux Falls and in Rapid City. Um, but as you know, there's 105 legislators with 105 different ideas. Um, there are a couple ideas for the remaining federal money, including one that would be $20 million uh, in grants to go towards uh, timber sawmills in the Black Hills to kind of keep those afloat. Um, there's other ideas out there to put $10 million towards telemedicine grants for uh, nursing homes and to expand that in schools as well. And then there's another idea that would take all of the $130 million that hasn't been um, appropriated yet and put that towards addressing water quality here in the state. So when will we know what is going to happen to those dollars? Yeah, so a lot of these uh, proposals and ideas that I've talked about, um, they've been moved to uh, what's called the Joint Appropriations Committee. That's a committee of House and uh, Senate lawmakers that they sit around all session and they craft the state budget. They hear from state departments, uh, they hear from legislators about ideas that cost money um, and that sort of thing. So these ideas are sitting there at this moment. It's kind of unclear when they'll take these up. There's no there's no real, um, like really hard deadline that they're, that they're working on um, when it comes to these ideas other than, you know, putting together the budget in the end of session. But their main focus right now is uh, the committees are hearing from state departments about their budget asks, et cetera. Next week is a key week because that's when um, this appropriations committee will set revenue targets um, for the end of this fiscal year, which ends in the end of June, all the way through to the end of next fiscal year, uh, which would be June of 2025. So um, they're kind of dealing with that um, at the moment. So those, those determinations and those decisions, they're not gonna affect this federal money uh, decision that they also have uh, on their plate. Um, so that's kind of where things stand right now. All right, also this morning, there was debate about a resolution that would oppose efforts to place abortion rights into the state constitution. Help us understand what happened this morning. Yeah, so there was a House resolution um, opposing uh, this constitutional ballot effort. There was intense debate about it, as you might imagine. Um, nearly every Republican state lawmaker is listed as a sponsor of, of this resolution. And the resolution lists um, several concerns about the proposed ballot question and what it would do. Uh, some of those concerns include eliminating state statutes that um, anti-abortion lawmakers say were enacted for the safety and well-being of the pregnant woman and her child, as well as the healthcare providers in this state. 
They, they worry that if this ballot question is approved by the voters, it will restrict their ability to enact future regulations on abortion and that it will negatively uh, impact parental rights. Um, the resolution also says that the proposed ballot question allows abortion up to birth. Um, if you look at the text of the proposal that's being circulated, it says the state can prohibit third trimester abortions, with the exception being to save the mother's life or preserve their health. Uh, current state law does allow for abortion in the case to save the life of the mother. Uh, however, some healthcare providers do want more clarity on, on what that means, and there's some efforts ongoing in the building for that as well. Again, the ballot question being circulated right now, it allows the state to uh, prohibit abortion in the third trimester, allows them to regulate it in the second trimester, but the state cannot regulate or prohibit abortion in the first trimester. So Lee, if we look at decades of the South Dakota State Legislature and the current makeup of the state legislature with a Republican supermajority, we know this is gonna pass. This is a non-binding resolution. Why was the debate itself important, do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, that, the outcome of, of this resolution is, is, is pretty clear. It's gonna pass. Um, and like you said, these resolutions are non-binding. It's not gonna affect whether um, the Dakotans for Health group can get this placed on the November ballot. However, I think what we saw in that committee hearing this morning is what the debate over the next nine months will likely be if it does make the November ballot. You know, if you're against placing abortion rights into the state constitution, this ballot question is gonna allow for abortion up to birth and it will remove parental rights and decades of legislative work to restrict the procedure versus um, the idea of overturning one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country and ensuring the right for women to make their own health care decisions uh, with their doctors. All right, Lee Stringer, live from Pierre. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lori. You're on In the Moment State House on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Jackie Hendry is host of South Dakota Focus on SDPB, and she's been covering policy that impacts children in South Dakota this season. She's joining us now for a conversation with South Dakota's Secretary of Education, Joseph Graves. Jackie. Thanks, Lori. So education is not immune to the ongoing workforce challenges we've been seeing in South Dakota in recent years. And actually, as of last month, around 300 teaching positions sat vacant around the state. That's according to the Associated School Boards of South Dakota. And Governor Kristi Noem said in her most recent State of the State address that one key way to retain teachers is by paying them what they deserve. And her partner in that effort is South Dakota Secretary of Education, Joseph Graves, who joins us now from SDPB's Capitol Studio in Pierre to discuss uh, teacher recruitment and retention, as well as some of the Department of Education's other priorities for this legislative session. Secretary Graves, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So Secretary, you come to this position uh, most recently after 20 years as a superintendent. And that context, I think, is really key here. So I wonder if you can put that hat on for us first and tell us when you first started to notice in your role as an administrator of a school district when it became more difficult to fill some of these open positions. You know, uh, that's an interesting question. It's, it's always been difficult to fill certain positions. So if you had a high school instrumental music position, you had an upper level math, upper level science, those could be difficult at any time in history. But what we started to notice was in about the last um, 
five, six, seven, eight years, right in there, we started having problems with hiring positions that we had never had issues with before. So things like middle school English or even uh, an elementary classroom teacher job because those had traditionally been very common, very easy to fulfill. We would, we would talk about that when I, when I began in, in my, my superintendency uh, over 30 years ago. We would have file cabinets full of elementary applicants. And so it, it became, when we knew um, five, six, seven, eight years ago, uh, when those began to be shortages, we knew we were in a real uh, definite teacher shortage. And in fact, I think the teacher shortage right now is historically unprecedented. I don't think we've seen one this strong before, certainly not in South Dakota. Right. And, I, and you know, that, that time frame encompasses the, the Blue Ribbon Task Force. There has been ongoing dialogue about whether or not that uh, approach to the teacher pay question was successful, um, but talk to us from the uh, kind of out role of that program, what you saw and uh, it, how that has informed conversations around this issue. Yeah, well, the Blue Ribbon Task Force was a, was a really a momentous thing in South Dakota. Um, that came out, basically it increased the uh, sales tax by half penny, allocated those dollars to school districts with the intention of giving that to the teachers. And so, you know, one of the normal uh, means of addressing a shortage in an area is to pay those people more. And so that did, it really did pick up um, after 2017, which was when the, the first year that it kicked in, um, and that really helped. Uh, it brought uh, salaries up 12.5%, in some cases 15 and others. Uh, it, it definitely uh, made it easier to uh, hire teachers. And it also moved us from 51st in the nation for our teacher pay to 47th. What we've noticed, though, in the last couple of years is it's drifting back down. We're back down to 49th. Uh, and in, in our analyses of that situation, we've discovered and, and pretty much uh, uh, calculated that not all of those dollars are getting to the teachers anymore. Some of those monies have been reallocated to other needs, and that's a concern because that uh, allocation, that Blue Ribbon Task Force recommendation and the increase in the sales tax was designed to go towards teacher compensation, and it has not, at least not in this full impact. So one of the uh, proposals at play this legislative session, the last I checked, has not yet been scheduled to be heard in committee, but that's House Bill 1048 to revise requirements for teacher salaries uh, brought forth on a request from the Department of Education. What can you tell us about how that bill might get at addressing this issue? Well, I think it, is, it goes right directly to the heart of the issue. Uh, first of all, uh, the bill comes out, and basically what it says is, Going back to 2017, which is the first year after the Blue Ribbon Task Force dollars came into effect, we would then look at that uh, average teacher salary for each individual district. It has to be district by district because you can't really lump them all together in South Dakota. And then go through it each year, increasing the average teacher salary expectation uh, per year according to the increase in the finance formula for schools and then and, and, and exerting those dollars. And basically then holding the districts accountable for that number. So if, you know, over those years, uh, you, you moved from 45,000 or whatever your average teacher salary was to 53, that should be the expectation in your district and, uh, we, and to be held accountable. We think that will definitely address it because it's specific, it gives them a number. And frankly, districts, as long as the number is reasonable, and it is in this case, districts will hit that number once they fully understand where it comes from and what it is. And so then I wonder if you can compare that to other uh, proposals at play, say, for instance, a, uh, establishing a minimum salary for teachers, which is a, another bill floating around there that also has not yet been heard in committee. Kind of compare and contrast that for those. Yes. And, you know, the truth is when we brought this forward, we thought this was our best plan. But we're definitely open to other plans. We wanted, well, our goal is to make sure that the teacher pay 
or compensation, whichever the case may be, goes up in a manner commensurate with those increases in the state finance formula. So if that can be uh, assisted with a minimum teacher salary, well, we're all in support of that as well. Um, it does have different effects. The average teacher salary or average teacher compensation, if it were to go in that direction, would mean you basically need to hit that average. So you can do anything you want in your salary schedule at that point. In the case of a minimum teacher salary, well, that would set it differently. It would say, okay, here's the lowest any of your teachers who are full-time can make, and then that will then go through, it will flow through the overall salary grid or salary schedule, whichever a district has, and increase the teacher's salary that way. So we think both have some pretty good advantages, and there may even be a combination in there of those two items that would uh, enhance teacher salary uh, in the most uh, maximal way possible. Right. And you're, you're a career educator, expanding out beyond the dollars and cents for what makes a person make a career in education. Of course, within the last few years, we also have a once in a lifetime disruption to classroom learning through the pandemic. Uh, we know conversations around education are changing, and this is something that I am hearing also in conversations with teachers is that it's not just a pay issue, it's a rhetoric issue and a public value of educators issue. I wonder how that plays into this conversation as well for you, particularly going from as a school district administrator to the department secretary. How is the way we talk about education policy impacting the decision to stay in the field? I certainly think there is, it is more than the teacher salary and teacher compensation. We need to get those numbers right, and then we need to move on to the rest because that, in some in some ways, that's the low-hanging fruit. We do need to do that. Uh, two things need to happen. First of all, we need, do need to appreciate our teachers more, uh, and that comes from parents and students as well. I mean, one of the number one factors that, that was a concern of teachers during the pandemic was student behavior. Uh, that uh, kind of got unleashed uh, during that time, and it became a real uh, problem for teachers. You can imagine how difficult that can be for anybody in a classroom if, teacher, uh, mis if student misbehavior increases. The other thing that needs to happen, though, is all educators need to kind of recenter themselves and say, you know what, I went into this for a purpose. I went in to serve students. That's where I'm going to find my happiness. And so it needs to be a combination of those things. Uh, all educators need to kind of sit back for a moment and go, why did I go into this profession? And what is it I'm trying to do? And if you can find that again, uh, you can return, you, you can find joy in your profession again. So it, it's a combination of both the, the, the pay and the compensation as well as how society treats teachers and how, and how teachers remember the real mission that they're performing for their students. What might you say to educators who get discouraged when it comes to these policy conversations? Say, for instance, concerns around critical race theory in K-12 classrooms, for instance, where teachers might be accused of indoctrinating students. That takes a toll based on conversations I'm having with current classroom uh, educators. What might be your encouragement to folks who are burned out by that? Well, I, I would encourage two things. Number one, first of all, take a look at what is happening. And I mean, is it a legitimate concern or is it not? Get that resolved uh, in your own mind, figuring out whether or not, you know, am I, am I stepping over the board? Am I locking parents out? Because that, that is a legitimate concern. And then beyond that point, I think you need to look at these issues and say, all right, again, though, what is it that I'm trying to do? What is my mission? This is, teaching is really a vocation. It's a calling. And we can't really let certain issues, we can't let what are really rather minor criticisms that, that are day-to-day -day come between us uh, and doing the best for our students. 
Secretary Graves, in our last uh, minute, 30 seconds or so together, uh, outline for us any other priorities for the Department of Education for this legislative session. Sure. One of our major priorities is the science of reading. Um, we've, we've been through the reading wars uh, in this country and in South Dakota. Uh, we abandoned phonics uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago in, uh, in education in general. It was a huge mistake and it led to dramatic decreases in proficiency levels in student reading. We need to get back to that. So we've got an agency bill. The governor supported it, put it in the budget. Uh, $6 million to be training teachers back in what's called the science of reading which is a body of research that demonstrates that phonemic awareness and phonics, along with three other factors, are huge and they're the only way really to teach kids to read well. Since K-3 is devoted to teaching kids to read and uh, beyond that is devoted to uh, learning through reading, we've got to get that right and so we're really, we're really on top of that issue. We want to make sure that that training gets returned to schools and that we're rewarding uh, schools and teachers we're doing this because some of the schools are already very much on top of this. Uh, we need to get everybody else back on board, including the universities, so that they can train new teachers coming in as well. Our guest has been South Dakota Secretary of Education, Joseph Graves. Secretary Graves, thank you again for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're in the moment on SDPB. This is our State House edition. I'm your host, Lori Walsh, and John Hunter is publisher emeritus of the Madison Daily Leader. He's been inducted into the South Dakota Newspaper Hall of Fame in 2022. He is our political junkie for the day. Welcome, John. Thanks Great. for being here. Thanks for the invitation, Laurie. All right. We're getting into the brass tacks of some of these complicated banking and budget and appropriations, uh, next week revenue projections. So we're going to help listeners understand a few of the complicated stories that are unfolding in here. <laughs> you want to break in with the Uniform Commercial Code. Yes, that's a great, uh, <laughs> it's a great one. It's a, a, let's go back and explain what that is. Uniform Commercial Code is really a set of laws. Um, remember, states have the right to regulate commerce in their state. and so, But it doesn't make any sense to have every state with different rules. So there's a group that gets together and represented all 50 states plus American territories plus the District of Columbia, and they try to say, look, let's be common about these things. Then they make these proposals to the states, then states adopt them. And that's how uh, someone can buy, you know, uh, let's say the project across the street. They can buy steel from another state, and they can have contractors, architects, and so forth uh, sure. to conduct conduct business. So... Um, but they don't get adopted uniformly. Um, typically, there is a time frame circumstance. Um, they may be proposed one year. They may not get adopted till the next year. But eventually, all states, with the exception of Louisiana, believe it or not, and American Samoa, have adopted basically everything that's in this. And um, it makes sense. It's a, it's a common set of rules that we can all use. South Dakota last year, in the recent proposals, um, passed uh, acceptance of those new rules. A state House and the state Senate both passed them, sent it off to the governor, who vetoed it, and they did not override it. There was about, it passed by about 75% of each House, but it was not, the veto was not overridden. So a few changes, a few word changes, and the governor said she would support that this year. Um, last year's controversy was over cryptocurrency, and there were some, I think, in my opinion, uh, and I wrote about it this week, there were some misunderstandings and there were some politics that got involved with that. And I think both of those were kind of cleaned up and 
I'm, I think it'll all pass this year. It's passed one chamber, but uh, it still has a ways to go. So part two, without with with a, a greater clarification and time for education, do you think? How did, um, because there's not much that has changed from last year. It's just clarifying what exactly this will do explicitly. Very good. Yes, that's I think exactly what it is. There is very little different from last year to this year. Some of it is defining cryptocurrencies and what's called the central bank I forgot there's an acronym, but uh, having to do with a, a digital currency issued by the U.S. government. And there are times when uh, Governor Noem says anything proposed by the Biden administration is bad, so therefore let's not do this. Uh, if it was a, if I think if there was a Republican administration, it would have been adopted uh, those same circumstances last year. But uh, clarification, a few minor changes, and it's it looks as though it will go. All right. So tomorrow on the show, we're going to have a conversation with the president of the South Dakota Bankers Association. Lee Strubinger talked to him. The bankers are for this. The blockchain groups are for this. And now, does it seem like the governor's yes. for this? Yes, okay. it sure does. And the bankers were for it last year, too. Right. I mean, and now... And I most think... lawmakers were just the governor right. did the veto. Right. Okay. So let's move on to some other things that you're following right now with the budget and state departments. Yeah, there's an interesting process. You know, this has evolved over my career in journalism and following state uh, budgets. Um Remembering the process of, of uh, appropriations in South Dakota goes to a, a, a committee, a joint committee, and, and agencies make their requests. Some time ago, there was a focus on um, taking out a portion of that, and it was employee salaries because they were saying, look, state employees, uh, we want to make sure that they, are, uh, they get raises this particular year. So then they said, let's talk about that as a group, and we'll discuss that, and then... Um, the rest of the budgets we'll take care of separately. Uh, later, uh, state agent education got in there, and also community health providers got grouped in there. And eventually, now what's called the big three, and it's a very common term. Uh, it is relatively new in state budgeting history, but and not only those are big three, and yes, they are a very big portion of the budget. Um, but they now typically in the governor's budget address get the same rates. So it's a 4% rate, and it would apply to state aid education, employee salaries, state employee salaries, and community health providers. Um, but what does that do? And um, remember, the state appropriation still has to budget for all this stuff and appropriate. So if uh, an agency said, um, look, our employees are going to get a 4% raise this year, but appropriation said, yes, but your whole department, including salaries and everything else, only gets a 2%. What does that mean? It means everything except for employee salaries is going to get squeezed. So you have to, let's take, let's take education for a second, Lori. It's probably the easiest to understand. Um, roughly 80% of school budgets go to um, salaries. And so if Teacher salaries go up a certain amount, but other the whole budget does not go up by the same amount. Then all the non-employee salaries, buses, uh, buildings, books, uh, that was intentional, uh, <laughs> the three Bs, um, you know, cafeteria, all the other kinds of things that go with that would have to be cut down. Or you'd have to reduce your headcount. That would happen in state agencies as well, Department of Ag and Natural Resources, Department of Education, Department of Health and Human Services, and so on. So... Um, there is a there is a kind of this two-part pressure. One, you get the state employee salary on one side and then kind of everything else from the other. All right. So uh, are you seeing some of these conversations 
year by year? Are there changes in the year? Because I remember hearing something about, should we separate the big three? Should we separate state employees? And by the way, South Dakota um, public broadcasting employees are state employees, so we are talking about legislation that would impact us. But uh, separating them, state employees broadly, from teacher salaries, from the community care providers, is there any traction for that, or do they pretty much all move forward at the same pace for a reason? Oh, boy. Um, I would say they'd, they'd move together out of convenience, most mm-hmm. of all, and maybe political reasons, because it's palatable. They say, look, we're treating everyone the same. We're treating everyone fairly, 4% to everyone. That's It's probably politically pretty easy to deliver that message. Um it doesn't necessarily, there are three different animals, right? State employees, and they are all across the state, tens of thousands of, you know, I don't know, 12,000 employees or whatever there are. State AG education does not, is not teachers, as we've discovered, and there is, there is certainly pressure. We're giving 4% to uh, the education system, but only 2% raises to teachers or something like that. And community uh, health providers, nursing homes, mental health, that sort of stuff is completely different. I've always favored separating them. We're seeing that trend nationwide where you hear Senator John Thune say some of these big omnibus bills that are going through Congress, I'm in the favor of separating them. Not a lot of traction nationwide. You know, know. In Congress to actually do that, though, partially because of the amount of time yeah. that it would well, take. Well, yes. In South Dakota, part-time volunteer, not a volunteer, but a uh, citizen legislature. Citi- thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> citizen legislature doesn't have much time. You know, going back to the UCC bill, the second mm-hmm. one, 1163 or whatever that was, was hundreds of pages, you know. Do citizen legislators have time to read hundreds of pages to, to vote on something? But um, yes, I've always favored breaking those up and as much as you can have every uh, agency or every budget stand on its own merits and and earn that. But you're right. I think in the limited time and um, I think political posturing, I think posturing maybe is, is too strong a word, political presentation they like to group those together. Right. And they're together also because of some of the challenges of retention that you're seeing in all of those areas as well. Right. That's true. Which, again, welcome to South Dakota right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> Workforce I know, <laughs> being a, a grand challenge. Any other thoughts that you have going into, you know, past the crossover day as we look at the midway point here? Well, you, you just briefly mentioned, I hadn't thought about this before, but when you get the new revenue projections, that's always kind mm-hmm. of a, to me, it's a, it's a mark. You know, they've been basing all, most of their assumptions so far on forecasts that were done late in 2023. And now, and but remember, we're trying to budget for July of 24 to June of 25. And so these, when these forecast things come in next week, that could change a lot. It's like, oh, sales tax, now we project them to it'd be lower or going to be higher than what we thought. And that could affect all sorts of things. Um, it's always fun when they come in higher and then we say look we've got we can fulfill more people's requests and so forth if it comes in lower the belt gets tightened right which governor Nome warned during her state of her budget address in 2023 for this coming session uh, don't get too comfortable with having a lot of funds because right. the covid pandemic influx of dollars is over they're still trying to figure out where some of that money is going to go but now we're back to regular time but regular time can be filled with growth and great sales, right. great revenue as well, right. in South and, Dakota and especially. South Dakota does budget conservatively. I mm-hmm. mean, typically we, you know, our budget comes in under or close to where we budgeted it. So I think uh, people don't 
spend money they don't have typically in, in the legislature. All right. <laughs> John Hunter, uh, publisher emeritus with the Madison Daily Leader, South Dakota newspaper Hall of Fame inductee, and one of our Dakota political junkies. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lori. Welcome back to In the Moment State House on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The South Dakota Department of Corrections is looking to place and build two new prisons in the state. Bills appropriating funds for those projects are currently moving through the legislature. In light of those bills, we're going to talk about something that often gets missed in the conversations, and that is access. We're welcoming two individuals who go into prisons for visits with inmates and clients on our show. Jeff Backer is senior pastor and developer at St. Dismas of South Dakota, and Raleigh Hansman is a criminal defense lawyer with the Meyer Henry Sargent Law Firm in Sioux Falls. They're both here in the Kirby studio. Riley, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Lori. I'm excited to be here. Jeff, welcome as well. And thank you as well. All right, let's talk a little bit about what St. Dismas is first for people who have not been introduced. So St. Dismas, South Dakota is an organization that supports St. Dismas Lutheran Church, which is a congregation that meets behind the walls of the South Dakota State Penitentiary System. So we provide uh, worship uh, opportunities, Bible studies, one-on-one pastoral care counseling in Sioux Falls at the South Dakota State Penitentiary in the Hill, uh, in Springfield at the Mike Durfee State Prison, and then at Yankton. Um, we have touch points with our other corrections facilities in the state as well. But by and far, what our organization does is provides that worship support for that congregation that's just like any other church on the street, but just happens to meet behind the walls of the prison. Yeah. We also provide reentry services for those that are transitioning from uh, incarceration, whether that be jail or the prison system out into the world, hopefully to give them a hand up. Um, the system is not real good at providing some resources, so we hope to kind of fill those gaps, connect resources and, th- and needs for people that are transitioning out of incarceration. How long have you been doing this? So I've been with St. Dismas for uh, two years uh, as part of the organization. I've supported this ministry for Mm-hmm. A couple decades. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, it seems like a softball question to say, why does it matter to inmates? But help me understand through your personal experience why these connections matter to the people who are incarcerated there. Well, I think I think the the thing that Raleigh and I were talking about before this is um, you take away all of the circumstances behind why some of the people are where they are. You take away, you know, trauma situations and living environments, drugs and alcohol. You know, start to address some mental health needs. I genuinely meet some good people, you know, that made a bad decision or had a bad um, reaction to something in a moment, and it changed their life and someone else's life forever. In my world, I get to watch God do something amazing in people's lives. And And for the first time, a lot of my guys, again, are remembered. They're known. Um, they're told that they're not only redeemable, that they're not the worst thing that they've ever done or the worst decision they've ever made in their life, but that they've been redeemed and that they have purpose and value. And, you know, I meet some genuinely very smart guys. I meet some very creative people through the various ways that that the prison does offer some things. Um, That's what makes a difference because in that same tone, when people come back out into the world, we hopefully send them out with an understanding that they have value and that they can be contributing parts to society, and that there are people that care about that. Um, They're going to meet people that don't. And so hopefully we also give them some tools to deal with that as well, and that's Mm -hmm. part of our work. Raleigh, help us understand uh, lawyers and access to the prison system in South Dakota, the reasons that you need to go in, people in your profession. 
when I'm hired, whether it's a private retained client or court appointed counsel, my job is to work with that individual. Doesn't matter who hired me or how I became involved, that person is my client. To me, they're not just a defendant or an inmate, they're my client. And I owe all sorts of things to that individual so that I can do my best for them. They have a constitutional right to participate in their case and to participate in their defense. And we go to great lengths as defense attorneys to ensure that our clients that are sitting next to us have the ability to participate alongside us, both ensuring that they are competent to participate in legal proceedings, as well as having access to the material so that they can have an exchange of ideas and participate in strategy making decisions with us. When I say materials, I'm talking about discovery materials, which in my world means everything from audio and video to police reports to text messages to testing results, all of the things that the government has put together as evidence of what they believe or have accused my client of doing. That individual has the right to go through all of those materials, and they can be lengthy. It doesn't matter that I went through them and I have an opinion. That individual has a right to go through all of those materials as well. So I need access to them and they need access to me. So we have the ability to go through those materials, to talk about what is going on, to talk about the exposure they have, their risks, their probability at trial, their potential defenses, witnesses, investigations, all of those things. So if I can't get in there to meet with them, I can't do my job for them and for me, access is everything, and in talking to my clients who are in custody, whether it's pending trial or after trial on an appeal, their access to their attorneys is everything as well. And that takes time. Significant amounts of time. We sometimes receive a handful of pieces of paper for discovery, and then there are times where I receive terabytes of information, mm -hmm. and I need to be sure that client can go through all of it if they so choose. Some individuals, some of my clients, super involved, want to see every last inch of everything. Others of them don't. But it takes time to get through terabytes of information, to get through hours upon hours of videos or rec recorded telephone calls. And if I can't get in there, they don't get to see it. If I can get in there, I need time to be sitting in there. 45 minutes with my client isn't enough. I also need to build a rapport with this individual and a relationship so that they trust me when I am advising them of what my observations are, what I believe the law is going to say in their case, concerns I have about witnesses or trial strategy or why I'm doing this or that and why I agree with this or that that they're sharing with me. So getting in is part of it, but having the opportunity to then be there for a length of time to both build the relationship as well as give them access to the materials to then assist in their defense. So it's pretty much twofold for defense attorneys. Yeah, let's talk about obstacles to access. What are some of the challenges? First you, Raleigh, and then the pastor. It can be a bunch of things. Obstacles can be everything from where somebody is placed. So geography, if I have a client who's at the women's prison in Pierre and I'm here in Sioux Falls, that obviously presents a bit of an obstacle as far as travel and being able to get up there and then spend the amount of time with them while I'm there. Other obstacles, we do have some staffing issues. So if they don't have the staff to oversee visits that are going on, the visits are going to have to be shorter or not as available as we would like to be. Those are probably the main obstacles. 
The other big thing is people want to be able to review their materials by themselves in their cell. That's typically not going to be allowed for protective order reasons. It's both out of protection for my client as well as anybody listed in those reports, Mm -hmm. as well as trial strategy and attorney-client privilege. But not having the ability to give them those materials for them to go through means we have to carve out big chunks of time out of our own schedule and hope it then lines up with what the prison has available. Hmm. Um, Pastor, obstacles to access. What have you seen or what have you heard? Well, I think Raleigh hit the nail on the head with the fact that we're suffering from a staffing issue that is just unbelievable at this point. Um, you mean the staffing issue at the prison? At the prison okay. itself. Yeah. yeah. And, and a little bit of that, I mean, in my time there, we have seen that ebb and flow based on some policy changes, schedule changes, uh, all kinds of factors that have come into there. Um, but really, that is the probably the most overarching um, effect is the staffing and what's available and those kinds of things. The example that I used was Christmas Eve this year. The associate warden came in because that was the only way we were going to have Christmas worship. And it was not his schedule to be there. He came because he felt it was important. Well, and the thing that I say all the time, you know, the, the, the staff that we have within the facilities is really doing the best they can with what they've got. And we know the demand that's on them. I mean, it's long hours. It's a chaotic environment. It's a dangerous environment at times. Um, I see a tremendous amount of corrections fatigue in our staff right now, um, and and those are all compounding factors to that. And I would say for the most part, I mean, we operate surely at the pleasure of the state. Though we're constitutionally protected, religion is. I myself am not prote- protected by a constitution, right? Um, and so my ability to do what I do is based on that availability of staff the timing of what's in the schedule, other things that get put on top of what we're trying to do, which, Raleigh, that's one of the things that I was thinking of when you were talking about. Last August, you know, like the schedule changed because of staffing issue, and and we compete throughout the day with many other things happening within the prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all of those things exacerbate that issue. So that becomes, you know, the, the bottom line of what determines whether we get in or not at that point. Um, you know, we can never be in an environment, even though we're both protected constitutionally in what we can discuss with our people, um, there always has to be somebody there. You can never be in a room in as much as you trust somebody, you can never be in a room alone. So that takes people Mm -hmm. to do that. And they just don't have that. What do you want lawmakers to consider or the public who are kind of following the prison conversation? I don't expect you to speak to appropriations or even location if you don't want to, but what are some of the things that you think are important for them to consider about access in prisons as we move forward to design and uh, create the prisons of the future? Riley? What I want people to keep in mind is those that are sitting within those walls they're no different than you or me or Jeff. We're all five seconds away from making a decision that turns our life upside down. And so when people are making these decisions and they think, well, that that will never happen to me or that doesn't impact me or that doesn't impact my family, my community, my neighborhood, it's simply not true. And if more lawmakers, more members of this community in the state could recognize that those that are there are just like those that are not. And those of us that get the humble opportunity to serve those that are within those walls, we need the opportunity to do so to not only our fullest ability, but that which is authorized under our state and our federal constitution. 
I think one of the things that people, and I don't talk about this often, but one of my early memories is visiting my uncle who was incarcerated at the state penitentiary. And it occurs to me, Jeff, that uh, people don't realize how many people end up visiting the prison or needing or somehow connected to it. it. There is a temptation to say this is a very small population with a certain kind of family member and and it only affects a, a tiny portion. But from the professionals who visit to the staff who work there to the medical professionals to the clergy to a little kid who is probably five years old when I went to see my uncle there yeah. and sit in that visitation room, which I remember being like orange, <laughs> which it might still be. It's kind be. of a funky red. Yeah, it still. is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like an old Burger King. Right, 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 right. I don't know. Um, those memories stay with you with how we have these interactions and right. how this system is working. What do you want lawmakers to be thinking about You know, before you sit down for a complicated um, you know, give the invocation for, yeah, right. for that debate. Well, and that's, and, and the thing, and uh, what I was just thinking about with that is, is just kind of the understanding of what corrections is mm. has changed. And, and they need to be asking those questions. Are we actually providing just walls and bars? Or are we actually creating an environment where we're investing in a future, even for people that, that made a mistake, right? Or that we may not see as deserving? Right, because the truth of the matter is, there are sons and daughters, neighbors, friends, whatever you want, coworkers from all over this state behind those walls. It isn't just a Sioux Falls problem. It isn't just a Harrisburg problem. It isn't. It affects us all, and and I think they need to be uh, uh, considering that a little bit more. The other part about that is my job is not just for those incarcerated. My job is also, or was also, being in an environment where staff had a sounding board when they were having a bad day. I don't get to do that anymore. Mm. Um, there's there's things within that conversation right now going on because of the prison that there should be bigger questions uh, being asked about what this means moving forward, especially with a bigger facility. Um, my personal ask to the people of South Dakota, we will not have a chapel in the new prison as far as I know. We do in the current facilities. There is no holy space that I have heard planned in any conversation. And I am not the only religious context. There are dozens of religious contexts within the walls. That means something inside of there. In as much as people have their holy places in the outside world, trust me, the people on the inside have that same thing and need that same thing as well. So that's another question that, that I wanna lay out there as they start to talk about this is, are we actually serving the best way we can, not just bars and walls, mm -hmm. but actually recognizing that these are people and offering what it needs to, to support that? Yeah, it's a conversation for all of us. It is. Uh, Raleigh, we have like 30 seconds left, but I do want to address one thing, and I think you can answer this. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Victims of some of the people that you represent want to know why justice is important in the context for the person that maybe has caused them the greatest loss of their life. It's important because the only way any one of us can heal is if all of us get the opportunity to heal. I try very hard not to put myself into the shoes of either my client or a victim, but I know from interacting with both sides of that that the only way anybody moves forward is if everyone has the opportunity to be heard, to be healed, and to grow amongst what has happened. 
this is the system that we create and continue to uphold. All right, Raleigh Hansman is a criminal defense lawyer with Meyer Henry Sargent uh, Law Firm in Sioux Falls and Pastor Jeff Backer, senior pastor and developer at St. Dismas of South Dakota. We'll put some links up on our website um, so that people who want to volunteer or are interested in learning more or want to find the work that you do at Meyer Henry Sargent can, can find you. But that is our show for today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Lori. It's been an honor to be here. I really hope this conversation served a lot of people. We'll continue to have these conversations in the future. From all of us at SDPB, thank you for listening.